Amen. Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. And as you make your way there, I want to remind you what we've been looking at this Advent season. We looked at the wonder of the Incarnation. We also uh, talked about the why of the Incarnation. And we looked at the role that waiting plays in a Christian life as we wait for Jesus' final coming. And this morning, we have another W, and it's going to be, what's the proper response to the Incarnation? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's worship. It's worship. Let's, let's read Matthew 2 together, and we'll pray, and we'll jump on in. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this news, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the, by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For all those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we desire to see Jesus in his splendor, his beauty, his majesty, his worth, his work. We thank you that as we see Jesus, we see you, the Father, and we see the Spirit. For though you are three, you are yet one. Father, I pray that you will exalt our triune God now that we might respond accordingly with worship. Lord, I pray for those who know Jesus that today might be a day when our hearts are strengthened. And I pray for those who don't. Might today be a day where you draw them and woo them to the king that their hearts were made for. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, when was the last time that you had to make a decision where you had two options, option one and option two, and you had to decide between the two? We recently upgraded our television, and some of you have been in our home and you've joked us because our TV was too small. And with diminishing eyesight and, and LED lights kind of going out, we finally upgraded and I'll tell you what happened. It, it landed us in Costco, deciding between a Samsung and a Sony, an OLED, QLED, LED. You know, we got it down to two TVs, and we chose one. On a more serious note, our dog has been limping for about a month, and we took him to the vet, and they did blood work, and after about a month of him not improving, we took him back to the vet a couple days ago, and they did an x-ray, and we were not prepared for what she would tell us. She says, I think we need to amputate a toe. He has a mass on a toe, and, and there we were in the vet, amputate a toe, or, or, or try this medicine for more time and risk that this might be cancer, right? And so we made the decision to amputate a toe. Maybe you've been in those situations. Do you take this new job or this new job? Do you move to this city or this city? Or do you ask her out on a date or her out on a date or him out, right? Like we're all making these decisions and you have to choose something. You can't not choose. I think what Matthew is doing this morning is, is forcing us to choose. Which king will you bow to? You will bow to a king and a kingdom. And the question is, which king and which kingdom will you bow to? Matthew's going to put two kings before us this morning. King one is Herod, and king two is Jesus. And you must choose. 
And this is, a, this is all over the scriptures. You might remember Joshua, where Joshua is about to die, and he comes to Israel. He says, choose this day who you will serve. Will you choose the gods that are beyond the river, or will you choose Yahweh? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You might remember when Elijah does this to Israel. He says, look, choose today. Will you bow the knee before Baal? Or will you choose the Lord, your God? You have to make a choice. Now, good Reformed theology says that in our choosing, there is God's wooing. And so we might get to the point where we make a choice to bow the knee, but that is only happening after God does the wooing, right? And so the right way to look at this text is this. Matthew's going to give you two kings and two kingdoms. Which king woos you? Which king grabs your affections? Which king meets all the things your mind and soul and body were made for? And if you find that king, then there must be a response. We bow. And we worship. You notice that these wise men didn't just wake up one day and choose. They were wooed and led there by a star that God put in the sky. Which king woos you? Christmas really is about God sending the king that your mind Your heart, your body, your soul was tailor-made for, and it is about responding rightly to that king. Now, how do we know the kingship motif is here? You see it right out of the gates. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, notice what the wise men said. They, They came from the east saying, where is He who has been born king of the Jews. Now, who had been born? Verse 1 says Jesus had just been born. So Jesus is the king. He's also called ruler. He's called the Christ. And for the, the rest of the text, he's called the child, the child, the child, the child. And listen to what Matthew's saying. He's not saying Jesus will become king when he becomes an adult. He's actually saying That man's a king right there as a child. But he's not the only king in this chapter. Notice when Jesus was born. In the days of Herod the king. When Herod the king heard this. After the Magi listened to the king, they departed. Do you see what Matthew's doing? At that particular point, there were two kings in the land. And they have nothing in common other than their names, their title. Herod is in a palace. Our king is in a manger. Herod is old. Our king is a child. When this passage ends, Herod is dead. And our king is alive. 
Let's look at these two kings. Let's look at Herod the king and his hideous kingdom. Now, which Herod is this? This is not to be confused with Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. That was his son. This is Herod the Great. He was a wealthy, ruthless, politically gifted, and an excellent administrator. You might hear people refer to the temple as Herod's temple. This is Herod the Great who rebuilt or or fortified the temple more, but there was an evil side to him. D.A. Carson says that he loved power. He inflicted heavy taxes on the people to fund his projects, to make himself look good. He was a paranoid man and reacted very brashly towards rumors of betrayals. He was known for killing close associates, his own wife, and three of his sons. In fact, church history says that Caesar Augustus, hearing about Herod, said that it is better to be Herod's pigs than his own sons. This is the king. And then one day, some strange men called the Magi, right? They, they show up. They, they, they show up from the east. They came to Jerusalem. Who are these men? Now, first, we normally assume that there are how many of them? Three. Here's the thing. You don't see three of them in the Bible. It's just plural. We don't know how many of them there were. Older church history says that there were 12. Here's the thing. We we, we don't know. Now, we tend to associate the three gifts with the three men, and that's kind of where we get that number from, but we don't know. Second, we have this image of them riding in on camels, but there's a very strong chance if they are from the kingdom to the east, which is Arabia or the Parthians, they didn't travel on camels from those kingdoms. They traveled on Arabian horses. And these magi, they show up in the Old Testament, don't they? And here's the thing. When you look, go back to the Old Testament, they're always showing up around kings, around pagan kings. And so remember Exodus, when Moses goes in and and they're about to deliver God's people with God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, Pharaoh summons his magicians and sorcerers and astronomers, and they start to do some of the dark magic, right? And then their magi get to the point where they say, hey, we can do these other things, but these gnats and moving forward, that's the hand of God. You might remember when Daniel is with Nebuchadnezzar and he has these dreams and Nebuchadnezzar summons his magicians and his magicians can't tell him the dream. And then Daniel can. And then his son, oh, got to get his name right, Belteshazzar, right? He sees a hand writing on the wall and they don't know what it's writing. And so he summons his magicians and his astrologers and his wise men, and they can't figure it out. And then one of them says, hey, your father made Daniel the chief of the Magi. Go summon him, and he can tell you what it is. One scholar goes so far as to say that these Magi, because they're always in royal courts, always around kings, 
that they were king makers. Fourth, these men are definitely Gentiles. Fifth, pay attention to the order of events. We tend to think that they rode in and went straight to Herod's palace and asked, where is the king? But, but that's not what the text says. The text actually says, behold, the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. And they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod heard about this and he, he was troubled and he summoned the chief priests, but he doesn't summon them until verse seven. Now, 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 now think about the image I think we ought to have a slightly different image than the one that's seared in our minds. What if there were more than three? And what if they were riding in on Arabian horses? And what if they were announcing the king has been born, 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 and where is he? And what if Herod Hearing all of this, then summon them secretly. They're not asking for his permission to announce that the Messiah had been born. They were already doing that. And why would Herod not bother them when he has the power to kill all the two-year-olds? I think it's fear. They're kingmakers who come from another kingdom. And if I'm not careful, I'm going to be in the middle of a war. And so how does Herod respond when he summons them and he hears this? It says that he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And this internal emotional revolt set in motion a series of heinous events. He assembled the religious leaders He inquired where the king was to be born according to their scriptures. He summoned those men secretly. He commanded that they go away and go find this king. He commanded them to come back and tell him where he was so that he could come and worship. And here's the thing. It was all a lie. He had no intention on worshiping that king. His plan was to kill this rival king In the same way, an alpha lion will kill another male who is in his territory. And when they do not return, his true colors comes out. He commands that all male children two years and under to be killed. The king who was supposed to protect the people from outside threats is himself the threat. And this sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what Pharaoh did when he had the Hebrew boys murdered. It sounds very similar to Revelation chapter 12 when the virgin is giving birth and the red dragon is there waiting for the child to be born to devour the child. This is no ordinary pagan king. This is the prince the power of the air, hating Messiah. When you think about Herod in this light, what words come to mind in column A? He's treacherous. He's deceitful. 
He's murderous, jealous, paranoid, lacking integrity, self-serving, unjust, hard-hearted, unstable, and he's touchable. The palace guards cannot stop death from coming. When the smoke clears, this king is dead. And sadly, Herod's reign impacted the people. Look at verse 3 with me. Notice that when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. And who else was troubled with him? What does the text say? All of Jerusalem. You catch that? That's what his reign has done to the people of Israel. Now they're threatened by the one that their hearts should treasure. They've grown comfortable with this predictable, today comes, tomorrow comes, I don't want my life challenged or changed. They were not waiting on Messiah. That people like Anna and Simeon were the exceptions, not the norm. It's what John says that God came to his own and his own did not receive him. Maybe they had lost hope. Maybe they didn't want the uncertainty of a new king. And you know what? We do that. If we king anything or anyone whose name is not Jesus, this is how our lives will be. Unstable, full of rivalry, deceit. This is what you get in column A. Death, injustice, fear, jealousy, godlessness, judgment, pain, suffering. Is that the king you want? Is that the kingdom you want? There's another king in another kingdom. Let's look at the second point. Christ the king and his glorious kingdom. Now, it's important to note at this point, Jesus is still a child. And we don't know how old he is. He is somewhere between 33 days and two years, right? We, we, we just don't know when these events take place, but he's a child. He's yet to perform any miracles. He's too young to talk and definitely too young to teach. The parts of his brain that need to be developed to speak and reason haven't been developed. And contrary to what we think at this point, Jesus isn't like a little Jack-Jack from The Incredibles. <laughs> he will look just like a kid, right? Can you find anything that Jesus actively does in Matthew 2? Do you see a miracle? Do you see a parable? You don't. We see a lot of things happening to him. People come to visit him. People bring gifts to him. Mary is holding him. Mary and Joseph 
carry him from place to place. At first glance, there is nothing impressive about him here, but not so fast, right? The things happening to him here serve as a window into his worth and into his work. There is a miracle here. It's the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus didn't birth himself. Somehow, the one who was the second person of the Trinity, who was at the right hand of God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, was made to become an embryo. He was made where humanity was added to, his humanity was added to his divinity without these things being commingled or changed, and our minds cannot fully comprehend that. But the one who had been at the right hand of God was now laying on the right side of Mary's pelvis. The one who is the backbone of creation was inside of her pressing against her backbone. And as Mary pushed Jesus out, God put forward the king that your heart was made for. And this is miracle There's another miracle here, and it's called his star. Somehow when Jesus was born, look at what the wise men say in verse 2. We saw his star. Think about that. When I was born, there was no star in the sky that led any of you to me. You were not led to King's Daughter's Hospital in Brookhaven on June 21st, right? None of you in this room, no star appeared guiding people to you. But when this sun appeared, a star, and the star was what? A sign. A sign for the Magi. These Gentile king makers, God gave them a sign. And here's the thing, they weren't the only ones to get a sign. If you look at Luke, the sister passage of this, Luke says some other people got a sign. And the people that got a sign in Luke were not the highly educated magi who ride in on horses who make kings. In Luke's gospel, the ones who got the sign were the shepherds in the field who were uneducated who probably stank a little bit. And they got a sign in the sky. The angels appeared. And then they told them, good news for you, for great joy. Here's a sign for you. There is a sign that you're going to find a baby wrapped in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's going to probably smell like you and look like you. Do you see what we're learning about this king? You get signs. If you're on the upper echelon of society, this king is here to serve you. And if you are over here on the have-nots, this king is here to serve you. He is for the royal and for the regular and for all in between. 
You'll notice that Matthew uses this refrain four different times. This happened to fulfill what the prophets wrote. And he's going to reference Micah. He's going to reference Hosea. He's going to reference Jeremiah. And then there's that last one where he talks about this is what the prophets, plural. So he's not quoting a particular verse. So if you're looking for a verse that says Jesus must be a Nazarene, you won't find it. He says prophets, plural. In other words, as Bill and Carson say, he is actually summarizing what we know to be true from the prophets about the anointed one. He's going to grow up in obscurity. His suffering will not begin on a cross, but when he grows up on a dirt road town, he's going to be like Samson who was indwelled by the spirit who did mighty things. You're going to see that when he was born in Bethlehem in verse 5, it was because the prophet said it. When he has to flee to Egypt, it's not a coincidence. It's because the prophet said it. When he returns to Nazareth, it's because the prophets said it. Even the suffering that the families endured when their sons were killed. Because the prophets said it. Anyone who takes seriously the integrity of the Bible will see that all arrows and lights are flashing and pointing to that. This is the king that the Bible has promised. And you'll notice that this, this king, even as a child, has servants who protect him. Did you notice how frequently the angels show up and thwart the plans of the evil king? They appear in dreams in the sky. And did you notice that with this king, he doesn't just look out for his own interest. He looks out for the safety of those who love him. Mary and Joseph were warned. And they were spared. The Magi who came to worship him were warned. And they were spared. He is not like Herod who is self-serving. This king shares his security detail with his people. The powers of hell are neutralized by this king. Consider the emotional state of those in his kingdom. Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. But notice what it says about the Magi in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And if you look at Luke, like it's, 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 joy is a part of the king in the kingdom. Luke 1, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. When Mary entered Elizabeth's home, John the Baptist leaped for joy when Jesus' fetus came in there. The angel said to the shepherds, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do you see a distinguishing mark of this king and his kingdom is joy, and joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is dependent upon happy circumstances. Joy is deeper. 
There is death and destruction and carnage and deceit and grief happening around here. But their joy isn't tied to what's happening around them or to them. It's tied to the one who is for them. You know, Redeemer, when new leaders take office, the public and the press often want to know what will they do in the first 90 days, right? The clock is ticking. What are they going to do in the first 100 days? It is a down payment. Are you going to be trustworthy? Will you keep your word in office? I think Matthew wants us to take the same approach about Jesus. What you're getting here is just the first 100 days, probably more. But the point is this. What's to come? If the inauguration of his reign is this good, where his people are safe, where they're protected, where their joy filled, where he embodies humility and dwells among us. If this is what he does when he is a child, imagine what the rest of his reign is like. And you don't have to imagine. You have the Bible. The Bible is going to tell you what kind of leader he is. He is forever meek and lowly at heart. He forever humbles himself and moves towards you. He is forever the king who is for the have and the have nots. He is forever the one who is fair and loving and kind. He is forever the one who has supernatural power and protection at his right hand and his left hand should there be one billion demons who try to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. They will fail. He is forever the king who will protect you in life and in death, who will not abandon your soul to the grave, but who will call you forth out of the grave. He is forever the king who will make all things new. He is forever the king that your hearts were made for. And when the dust settles, this king will stand and all other kings will bow the knee. And what's even better, Redeemer? Herod's a killer. Our king lays down his life. Herod tried to kill, and Jesus says, I've not come to kill. I've come to heal. And I've come to lay down my life. I'm not like him. Now, why? It's because the same scriptures that told us where Jesus needed to be born and how he would be born and where he would flee to and when, where he would go when he moved back. Those scriptures also say what's going to happen to him when he's an adult. And those scriptures say that your king must die because we make other things and other people kings over him. The same king 
who had angels in Matthew 2 is the same one on Calvary who says, right now I could summon a legion of them. But I'm telling them today, you stand down. Today, you don't come to my aid. Today, you don't fight for me. Today, you don't protect me. Why? Why would the one who has angels in Matthew 2 later tell them to stand down? It's because there was no other way for the gifts of the king to become yours and mine unless the king himself lays down his life. And as we believe in this king and bow to this king and embrace this king, then the safety, then the joy, then the protection, then the grace, all of these great things that come to us, come to us through the cross. Which king do you want? You want Herod? Or you want Jesus? Does Herod woo you? Does Jesus? Amen. How then do we respond? It's with worship. We see it in this passage. It's about worship. They've come to worship. You catch that? Where is this one? Look at verse two. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Then look at what happens when they they go into the house in verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And they gave him gifts. Other gifts, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And there's thought around, what do these gifts mean? Gold is for king and myrrh and frankincense foreshadow his priestly work and and what he'll be buried in. And, And that's probably there. But here's what we do know. They traveled. They were drawn in. And they walked and they moved and they rode. And they landed right there at the feet of this king. And they believed. And they bowed. And they laid precious gifts at the feet of their king in worship. And you know what Paul says in Romans? He says, in light of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as living sacrifices This is your reasonable worship. The one who gave his body for us is right to demand our bodies. The one who left the right hand and treasures of the Father is right for us to give our treasures to him. The one who loved us with his heart and soul and mind and strength and love his father with his heart and soul and mind and strength, it's fitting that we give our hearts back to him. And we don't do this to win his love. We do this in response to his love. I'll close with this. 
This is a reference and not a recommendation, right? So I'm going to reference a movie, and I'm not saying go watch the movie, right? Also think, like, as we are Christians, we kind of have to learn how to exist in a world and still practice those disciplines of fleeing. You see somebody beautiful and attractive, like, like flee, just, 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 just flee, right? Or if you go shopping and your heart is tempted to covetousness or, or buying more stuff, it's totally okay to just turn around and like walk out, right? And when we're watching movies and something is on the screen and it's not appropriate, like, isn't it like healthy Christianity to like just say, hey, fast forward that, right? We good there? This is a reference, not a recommendation. <laughs> All right, I just want to preface it. The movie is coming to America. <laughs> All right? All right? All right? It's about three scenes in the movie. Like, look, just turn your head, mute it, turn it off, whatever. But the story is beautiful. It's a story of an African prince named Prince Akeem. He's from the, the country of Zamunda. And he has this arranged marriage. And he doesn't want to marry her. And so he says, I want to go and find a real queen. And so they spin the globe and they end up landing in Queens, New York. And so they go to Queens, New York to find a queen. And so it's this guy, y'all, he has money with his photo on it. He is royalty. He has like professional bathers. And you see him mopping a floor at McDowell's. The one who has his money with his face on it is making minimum wage. He goes to this far land to find a queen and he humbles himself and he veils who he truly is. And here's the thing, when you watch the movie, his real identity kind of comes out like, like, like your shirt that gets untucked. You just can't keep it veiled. It comes out. It comes out when these robbers try to rob McDowell. And then he takes his broom and his mop and he beats this robber. And you know, everybody's like, what? Where'd you learn that? But if you knew back in his country, kings trained for war. And his identity kind of comes out and the people applaud. And there's one scene when he goes to watch American basketball. And he goes to the restroom and the restroom is this really, really, really long line. And he's standing there as the king. And then all of a sudden, someone from Zamunda who is selling popcorn and sodas at a game. He walks past him. He sees him. And then he stops. And he turns around and he says, Oh my goodness, this is the greatest day of my life. 
I have seen the king, and I am a royal citizen of Zamunda. And then he gets on his knees in, in a line to the bathroom and just starts to bow and bow and bow. And Eddie Murphy's like, hey, get up, get up. And then Eddie Murphy walks off scene, and then him and this other guy, they keep following the king. They follow the king and say, hey, please, can we have your photograph? Then they say, kiss my hand. This is the greatest day of my life. It really is a beautiful picture of a king who humbles himself. But when people truly see who he is, they applaud, they bow, and they worship. If you truly see who Jesus is, you can't turn away. You must fall to your faces and worship him. May that be so for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending us the king that our hearts were made for. He is tailor-made for us. Lord, I pray for those who have kinged other kings, money or people, or politicians, or self, or pleasure, those kings lead us to destruction. There is one true king, and he is meek and lowly at heart. There is one true king. He's not come to kill, but to lay down his life. There is one true king who took upon flesh to become like us, that we might, through his redemptive work, become like him and reign with him forever and ever and ever. Father, if we have been wooed by this king, then this is ours. And I pray that on this day and days to come, that we will cherish him and honor him and worship him with our bodies, with our talents, with our time, with our affection, with our minds, with our hearts, with our whole being. Do it by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.